Hi, and thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. Welcome to Dream 10X episode 59. It's your boy JC. And I'm Dr. Cable. And I'm, go ahead. <laughs> I'm the random guy on the corner of the table, Brooks Willett. I here as a special guest. Super happy to be here with the Caples this evening. Yeah, he's my cousin and he's uh, in town for the week. And we, we roped him into being on our podcast. We're very excited to have you with us. Thank you. Yeah, and um, we thought we'd let you tell us a little bit about what your adventure is this week. Sure, that you're undertaking. Absolutely, yeah. So it just happened to work out. Um, I love biking. I love endurance uh, sports, and you know the, the Capels and I we'd explored uh, several different crazy ideas in the past. You know, James and I way back when we tried to get on the uh, amazing race together. That didn't work out. Uh, Dr. Capel, JC, amazing, and I. amazing. Yeah, that's right. A long, a long time ago. Like, I don't. Uh, too long ago. <laughs> too long ago. Uh, we tried to get on Eco Challenge Patagonia a couple years ago, uh, and then they canceled the show. Yeah, they knew we were going to dominate, so they're just like, "Wow, we can't even can't even have a show." Um, but yeah, no. So I did a two day bike packing trip with a friend out in Washington State when I lived out in Seattle, and it was it was terrible and it was great all at the same time. I, I was telling Cindy earlier that. Um, on day two, with about 10 miles to go to our truck in the middle of an army training, training center, uh, I slashed my tire, uh, busted my inner tube, and so we ended up uh, putting my tire back together with all the patches I had in my kit, put my spare tube in, and then gingerly and quickly rode as fast as we could back to the truck so I would still have a rear tire. Um, survived the trip, you know, we made it back, and I apparently want to do more, and so now... Um, rather than just like a 180 mile trip, um, I'm up here going to do the CNO Canal Towpath Trail to the Gap Greater Allegheny Passage Trail. Um, it'll be about 350 miles mm, from uh, here to Pittsburgh. Um, going to do it over three days. And so this is, in my world, I would love to ride all the way across the country. Um, so probably not quite there yet. So doing it, you know, in terms of just time and commitments with family and work. But, you know, this is, I uh, worked with a family. This is kind of a birthday present to myself, uh, where I get to, to go me too. to you as well. Get to go do this for the the next week, and yeah, super excited, super looking forward to that, and hopefully many more adventures to come. That's awesome. So yeah. that that's in sorry, yes, I don't want to cut you off. No, go ahead. <laughs> I always get chastised off camera for cutting her off, so I don't want to do that. So I love how one of the things we talk about in Dream 10X is building in adventures into your life, your daily mm -hmm. life, and how do you get off work and how do you get the time. So I love that you built this really epic micro-adventure into your whole the whole uh, system. So yeah, it's pretty it, awesome. Yeah, and even really about four years ago, um, I was basically presented with a job opportunity uh, to go work for AWS mm -hmm. out in Seattle. Um, so all opinions are my own. Uh, I am I'm a senior manager, senior software development manager with AWS. but. About four years ago, a recruiter called me up and was like, hey, do you want to come work for AWS? Do you want to move across the country? Um, I did. I had been to Seattle before mm -hmm. when I was super, super little, super young, so I didn't know a ton about the city. Um, but basically, it reached a point in my life where I knew, you know, there were several things I wanted more of. I wanted more outside time. I wanted more exercise. Um, I wanted to try to reduce my uh, carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. And so 
all these things were kind of in the back of my mind of like, on one hand, like professionally, like working for AWS, like, yeah, that'd be really cool. And then as I was talking to people about, like I accepted the offer and we moved out, the, the kind of joke was, well, I'm moving across the country so I can bike to work every day. <laughs> and so, you know, for about a year and a half pre-pandemic, I was doing 100 miles a week, wow. you know, 10 miles each way, five days a week. Um, and like that was, you know, the fitting the adventure in. Mm -hmm. um, and like it just, that was the, the most I'd ever really been able to cycle consistently in my life. Um, we were a one car family, which, you know, my wife and I had been when we were early in our marriage, we'd been a one car family and that was super, uh, in a weird way, exciting for us. And then to be able to do that again now with two and then three kids, um, it was just, yeah, it was, it was super cool and fitting it in and kind of building that just as part of your life rather than this sort of yeah. bolt on. Um, and so, yeah, now it's, uh, mostly working from home. Um, and so then there are different ways of how do you kind of fit that adventure and how do you mm -hmm. scratch some of those itches that you may have for adventure? Yeah, it's, it's hard, but, um, I'm pleased to see that you're, you're doing yeah. it. We, we figured out a way some, uh, some fashion as well. Um, I was inspired to hear that you were doing this uh, and I'm trying to get my head around like 350 miles in three days. That's, and you're going to be camping along the way. And yeah. You're gonna end up in Pittsburgh, and then you're gonna take the train back. That's pretty. That's, that's right. awesome. That's yeah. Be, I, I hope you live. And... <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. I hope I see you on the other side of this trip, uh, like here in this world in this life. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's certain bits of sort of safety built in, you know. So it's a pretty well established path. It's not in the middle of nowhere. There's okay. shops along the way. So it's. Mm. It's trying to take those sort of calculated risks and mm -hmm. it's all, it's isolated from vehicular traffic. Um, so you don't have to worry about people on their phones hitting you while you're riding your bike. Um, and so that certainly is a huge draw. And it's also even like for the family, like, okay, we're going to support you through this again, because they want to see me on the other side yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the physical aspect of it, um, and like, how do you, the logistics of like, what do you need to survive for 350 miles in three days? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I ha had to make choices. Like I, I have a camp stove I love, um, but I left it behind, you know, cause it's one of those trips of like, I don't have enough space. Like I did, like I need to take a filter, like in terms of priorities, like I need to be able to filter water if I need it. Are you going to um, drink from a stream using the filter? Uh, potentially if I, if, what if do you there's have? Is it a life straw or something? No, it's uh, a Katadin. Um, I don't know the okay. particular brand, but it's, Same. it's one of the higher, yeah. um, ends, high volume. It's um, a Swiss company that makes a really high end. Right. Water filters. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, there we're close enough to, I'll be close enough to civilization where I plan to eat most of my meals. Um, I did pack some uh, protein bars and energy bars to help get me along the way. I have some electrolyte uh, powder to be able to add in. Mm -hmm. So trying to kind of make those trade-offs of like, what do you need? Um, you know, I had hoped the weather was going to be nicer. So live in South Carolina now and, you know, I'd actually hope to not have to bring a whole sleeping bag. Was this going to bring like a sheet that would, you know, be enough? And I was like, mm. yeah, it's getting in the 40s. Like I'm bringing a sleeping bag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not dealing with being cold at the end of a long day of riding. Yeah. So getting all that kit on your bike was a challenge as well. But you did seem to have done a great job of doing that. I was really impressed. Yeah. And then, you know, the logistics of like, hey, I'm going to be on a seven and a half, eight hour train mm -hmm. ride from Pittsburgh back to DC. Hmm. It's 100% full at this point. It's like, as much as I the love train, biking, the, the train. train is full. Oh. Um, <laughs> like, people probably wouldn't love it as much if like, hey, I've been three days on the trail. I haven't showered. I'm still wearing my bicycle That's kit. the good way to get all uh, the seating cleared out. Yeah, so so I, I'm, I do, I'm gonna get a hotel, you know, even though it's an early morning train, I'm gonna, you know, get a hotel, I'm gonna get showered. Mm -hmm. I've got, and so part of that like precious space 
is I have a clean set of clothes, you mm-hmm. know, because it's like one of those things of like, wow. this is this is my choice, you know, <laughs> this is something I want to do. And so I don't yeah. need to necessarily put that on everybody else in this train. Like, <laughs> yeah. hey, you're going to do this with me. Um, it's like, no, like I, you know, as much as I can, like, I'm sure I'll, I'm not going to look great at that point in my life. And so, yeah. you know, they're still going to have to deal with this scraggly dude and like his ran, uh, random <laughs> knapsack of bags, bags and bags that he's carrying. But yeah, it should be good. Cool. And I, I was, uh, so I was inspired by that. I'm also inspired to hear, I've never heard your desire to like sail around the world. Mm-hmm. So that was good to hear. Like, yeah. Other people in our family don't talk about crazy no. stuff like that. I know. Well, and I think this is part of their, you know, other than, you know, we, we talk about kind of in, in family settings, you know, I, I'm a little bit younger than James. And so he, there's a certain aspect. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. It's hard to tell. Really yeah. hard to tell. Uh, but you know, I, I and even now, like if you I wanted swear to, the opposite, but. yeah, you could still probably pummel me if you really, really wanted to. <laughs> but there, there's a certain sort of connection we have in terms of like sharing these big ideas and these these big crazy dreams. And um, yeah, so whether it's cycling across the U.S. or you know doing some long distance um, through hiking, uh, sailing around the world, you know that certainly is on the list of. Being able to, and like, honestly, this is the sort of weird world I live in. Like, one of the hardest things for me about thinking about sailing around the world is like, where am I going to put my bikes? Oh, you know, yeah. I'm going to get to all these great ports of call and I'm going to want to be able to ride my bike around. Sure. And it's like, you know, so that that's Storm almost one of the, the well, that's one of the criteria. Yeah. Like, whatever boat I get, I've got to be, even if it's just right. a foldable bike, I have to have room to be able to take a foldable bike so mm-hmm. I can then go explore sure. all the cities and things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's something... Um, I think that we, I had a great aunt, um, just recently passed away, lived in Santa Cruz. And I think she was probably really my first introduction to sailing on the Monterey Bay. Um, she didn't sail. She was, she was too old, but, um, she, one of the things she really wanted us to experience was going on this kind of charter sunset cruise in the Monterey Bay. And I was Mm. like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, this is so great. And, you know, so, uh, one other, at least one other time we've been back to Santa Cruz, um, actually took my brother and his family so that our two families got together and we chartered a boat. So it was just the captain and our two families mm. um, on a smaller boat. And that was super, super cool. Like, I think um, they really experienced kind of the joy of being out there and being close to water and sea life. Um, my wife and I, we've done, you know, when we were down in the Keys on a, a camping trip, we went on a group sort of charter. Um, one of the presents, speaking of birthday presents to myself, uh, highly kind of biased, obviously, towards experience at this point in my life, when we moved out to Seattle, was a coworker found out I would like to sail. And he's like, oh, the sailing club is offering this really great deal on ASA 101 sailing, you know, so you can become a crew member. Mm-hmm. And so that was my birthday present to myself. Nice. Uh, the first year out in Seattle was oh, cool. ASA 101. And so, you know, there are a couple other times to get to sail with him, this coworker. Um, as well as this other sort of sailing opportunities in Seattle. And I think it's just continued to grow. There's, there's obviously a, a lot of logistics I haven't figured out for what that would look like. But I think in terms of sort of maybe big, big, crazy big uh, life goals, yeah, sailing around the world would be one. And even now kind of mentally preparing that list of like, okay, where are the ports I'd want to go? Mm-hmm. You know, even trying to explain it to the family of like, okay, this is why it's okay. Like here are the islands you can stop at all across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the route across the Pacific. Here's where you refuel uh, or, you know, restock all your supplies. So we'll see. You know, yeah. Maybe one day we'll all we'll crew a sailboat. Yeah, yeah. Don't need some I, I adventure mean, I'm, reality I'm, show. I'm Just down. do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. Exactly. <laughs> We don't need to be on TV, but, That's right. but hey, if you want me to be on TV, 
<laughs> One of the cool things I really enjoy about these big, you know, adventure, planning these big adventures is trying to figure out uh, all the steps that you need to go through to, to get it actually done, to execute it. Yeah. Even though it's really painful, it can be really painful at times, figuring out all the things you need to learn, all the logistics you need to take care of, and, and all that stuff. It, I like part, I like that challenge more and more. I like the big things yeah. that um, require a lot of logistical planning and, and learning and things like that. Mm -hmm. you know, what are you laughing at? Nothing. Come <laughs> on, you're, you're smirking at me. Uh -uh. Do you not think that's the case? No, I think that's totally the case. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was just wondering if you were like, he doesn't know how to plan anything. I'm going to do his own planning right here. Well, I mean, I think it's 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 uh, counterintuitive for a lot of folks of like, oh, you just you want the adrenaline, you know, you want the endorphins. Um, you know, we we talked a little bit about this of like controlling the things you control. So like before yeah. we we started the camera, you know, I was talking about like counting the milligrams of caffeine I was right, going to have. Right. Like, yeah. On one hand, like there's a biological necessity for that, but on the other, it's like it's kind of irrelevant, but it's something I can control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so having that sort of sense of mm -hmm. you know what are the things you control? What are what are the steps you what need? Can you control? Mm -hmm. How can you maximize your probability of success in whatever this endeavor is? And I think that's one of the best things for me about, you know, like, what do I take away from this adventuring spirit is like, okay, how, how can I apply this to my life? Like, how can I maximize my probability of success and whatever this other thing is I'm going to do? And what's the planning I need to do to be able to make that happen? Yeah, the mm -hmm. planning. What, how do I take this big thing and break it down into discrete, small discrete steps that I can accomplish one by one to get to this big, yeah. big goal? Yeah. And I think that's really because. If you can figure that out, if you get good at that, what can't you do? Yeah. Absolutely. So, anyway, uh, any other comments on adventures or things like that? Nope. Dreams? All right. Well, what we actually are going to talk a little bit more about today is the Ben, Hor ben Horowitz book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. We're talking about big adventures and big goals. Uh, this ha actually has to do with building big businesses and how do you develop the skills, the leadership skills, the, the requisite leadership skills for building a big, scary business and how do you get through all the problems associated with building a big, scary business. And so I had no experience with building a big, scary business. I've got a little tiny uh, business right now. I'm trying to grow NautilusTracker.com or NautilusTracker, NautilusTracker.com. And uh, so I, I was really interested to, to hear about the career arc of Ben, Mr. Horowitz, author Ben Horowitz. I don't know how you refer to him. <laughs> the esteemed. <laughs> the esteemed Mr. Horowitz. And uh, how he went from becoming just a regular technology guy uh, to becoming the CEO of a, a large, fast-growing, publicly traded two companies, I think, um, uh, Opsware and, as well as LoudCloud. Yeah. And so one of the reasons I thought it would be great to have you on the podcast is because you work for AWS and uh, Mr. Horowitz was the CEO of probably one of the first cloud companies in the world, uh, LoudCloud in the 90s. And so I thought that was pretty, we, there might be some good discussion yeah, there about absolutely. cloud companies. Um, okay, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about who Horowitz is and how he got his kind of start and then talk about some of the key takeaways that he offers in the second half of the book about how to be a, a great CEO and, and some of the leadership principles that he imparts in the book. So he starts out um, working for a company called Silicon Graphics, which I thought was pretty cool because I, I got my start as an uh, early uh, learning 
Linux Unix system administration using SGI machines mm. and uh, learning IRIX a little bit. And I also worked on Sun Solaris kind of at the same time. And I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. You actually worked for SGI. And um, I, I'm not really sure what he did there, but uh, he ended up working a lot of hours and, and discovered that, hey, I need to, I really need to spend more time with my family. And so he jumped ship there and, and went to work for, I think it was Lotus or mm. some, some other company after that. And ironically, not too soon thereafter, he, he saw this neat, shiny thing called a web browser. It was called Mosaic. Oh, and have you ever used Mosaic? I have. You have? <laughs> Way back in the have day. Have you? You probably have. You're too young. I used Mosaic yeah. and I was blown away. I mean, they had that little dinosaur or lizard in the top right hand corner with the, you know, the shooting stars and stuff whenever you'd visit a new URL. And it was just so cool to see that and then see some like text and graphics appear. And back in the day, you know, prior to that, all you had was like uh, FTP clients and Telnet and, you know, non-visual tools for browsing the internet. Gopher and Archie and <laughs> those are really old tools. But So Mosaic was a really cool thing. Uh, it opened up the whole world, really, with this hypertext markup, hypertext markup language and being able to, to browse computers all over the, the world, basically. Um, so... He went to go, and this was Netscape, Net, the company Netscape was behind the browser uh, that was being built. Um, it, it was originally developed at the University of Illinois by Mark Andreessen, and he was now the 22-year-old 22, 22 CTO of Netscape, and Jim's Barksdale was, Jim Barksdale was now the CEO, or not Barksdale, I keep saying, Jim Clark, I think, was the CEO of Net, Netscape at the time. And... Um, <clears throat> So then uh, apparently uh, Mr. Horowitz starts working crazy hours again for this you know, company that's gone public, is going public and is trying to take over the, you know, the, the world with this new uh, internet technologies that it was developing. And he was ahead of the server group at the time. So they had, they had a, a lot of the company was geared towards developing a new, new web browser for the world, but he was uh, ahead of a, a group developing web server technology for the world. And again, <clears throat> one of the, my first jobs and how I learned um, a lot of doing hands-on server administration and web server administration was I was working with my mentor, Blair Morton, at the time. Thank you, thanks again, Blair. <laughs> Taught me all he knew about Unix commands and stuff like that. And we were using a Netscape server uh, ah. at the time. And uh, it was funny to, to hear that they had two server products they had an they had an insecure version that they showed they sold for a lesser price and then a secure version of it using yep. secure socket layer and all that they sold for more expensive uh, I just thought that was interesting given how insecure everything was at the time and how not a lot of attention was was given to security kind of much like it is today but <laughs> a little bit more concern given to that today so um, they went on and uh, the company grew like crazy and, and I have a link in the, the blog about uh, the web browser group and how uh, Microsoft started coming at them with their bundling of the Internet Explorer with Windows 95 and just trying to take them out of the market. And so one way that Netscape tried to counter that was by releasing the, the Mosaic or Mozilla uh, source code as open source and in the hopes that they would get uh, a large community of p people develop working on that code base and excuse me creating an even better 
web browser than what Microsoft was was throwing at them. And so this this video is really interesting. It, it follows all the Netscape developers around. They're they're like working 24/7, 365, mm -hmm. like trying to compete with Microsoft and uh, to help make that company successful. And I was just exhausted just watching them because they literally were just like working around the clock trying to get the code base in good shape and uh, to a point where they would feel okay releasing. It. And they had a hard deadline for when they had to push it out too. And so. <laughs> Or just like flogging, flogging everybody. Um, anyway, well, uh, that was like kind of a cloud distribution. Like they were shipping media, you know. So that this was a real hard deadline that they couldn't miss. Could not miss it. And um, yeah, it was intense. It seemed like it was pretty intense, but it was really cool to see how they were um, uh, doing the baking there yeah. <laughs> behind the scenes. Kind of enjoyed that. Um, so Microsoft came at them hard. They released the source code to kind of counteract the threat, and um, the company uh, was doing okay. But it, Microsoft was just pounding them, and it, you know when they when Microsoft comes at you, it's it's hard to to beat a company like that. So they ended up selling the company to AOL, which I thought was mm -hmm. also interesting for a couple reasons. One because um, it's AOL and it's in Virginia. Like it's not a Silicon Valley company. So here, this high-tech Silicon Valley company is selling to a media company in Virginia. That's really ironic. Yeah. Um, yet they're still very proud about being the Silicon Valley. You know. Anyway, and then the other thing is, it's a content company versus a technology company, and the, and the technology company was the one that was making all the money. So it, it I, I just wonder what that says about the market and how people perceive the market. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, even though the technology that came out of Netscape was awesome, like the the web browser, awesome. The the web servers were awesome. Cookies were invented there. JavaScript was invented there. LDAP came out of there. Lightweight yeah. Directory Access Protocol. So so many cool things came out of Netscape. It's such a great technology company. Yet the kind of the dumber content company in Virginia is the one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, cool. you know, to a certain extent, like they had the, the purse, they had the resources, they could continue to fund. Mm -hmm. um, it gave them a little bit of a niche in terms of kind of their own branding of like, oh, well, you know, obviously we're a technology company. Look, we just bought Netscape. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's several things there that are kind of interesting as you, you think about the history of technology and innovation um, mm -hmm. and how technology continues living on. Um, and I, I think this is one of the things that you'll hear a lot in some of the tech startups of you know, what is the, the technology itself is almost the vision. And so then as if there's a way, whether it's through open sourcing your code or through being acquired by a company that shares the same vision, uh, sometimes that is the exit strategy is to see the technology continue to be able to grow and influence mm. the world, mm. which I mean, Ben definitely makes a point about, uh, particularly around the LDAP and SSL, which is also a Netscape. You know, so many of those core internet technologies really came out of this company, yeah, which yeah. is kind of phenomenal. And and all that lives today and is like the under, underpinning of the of so many yeah. uh, core technologies that we use on the internet today. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so AOL, so they stayed at uh, uh, Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen, they stayed at AOL for a time, and then they decided to go on and start, start another company after that, as they do, and they go on and form the first cloud company called LoudCloud. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing about them back in the 90s, but I didn't think anything of them because I didn't know what cloud meant. And I think a lot of people had no idea what cloud meant at the time, and they were just so far ahead of their time, really. 
And um, so then now at this point, uh, ben Horowitz is the CEO of LoudCloud, and um, I think Mark Andreessen is a operating chief operating officer or something like that. And so I think at this point, um, so Ben has been working crazy at Netscape, and he goes to AOL, and now they decide to start another company, and is working crazy again at LoudCloud, trying to take this company public. And they've got a lot of they've got a good start with the money because they 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 made a lot of money off of their sale to AOL. They have personal capital that they're investing in the company. Um, I think Andreessen invested something like $6 million, and then they got a bunch of money from other people as well. Be a Viking. Get your Viking Rose hoodie, t-shirt, hat, or water bottle, and join the adventure. www.vikingrose.com Perkins, was, I believe, was also an investor in LoudCloud. And with Kleiner Perkins, if you recall from our previous episode talking about the Trillion Dollar Coach, came Bill Campbell who was an awesome coach and helped protect the investments that Kleiner Perkins was making by helping the companies be successful. So uh, one, of the key, one of the great things that Ben Horowitz benefited from as the CEO of LoudCloud was the counsel of, Bill, of Coach Bill Campbell. And so um, he got to be led through the disaster that was the dot-com bust of 1990s um, by, um, you know, bouncing ideas off of Bill Campbell when that happened. Uh, so that, of course, made a really hard market for them to survive and, and money was definitely tight and it was hard to do sales at the time because nobody was buying. And uh, they, were able to get that, they were able to get some subsequent investment rounds during that time. But then nobody was buying anything, so they, they ran out of money again, and it was just a constant struggle to keep the company alive. And then, of course, 9-11 happens, and then everything froze. And then what do we do now? We got no customers, there's no, there's no commerce, everything's dead. How do I keep my company alive? And so he had to figure that out um, you know, from the highs of the, of, um, the company to the you know, very lows and... Um, did all these had to go through all, all these situations of you know taking the company public and then uh, eventually selling to HP and so that that helped with one thing but then or sorry EDS they sold to EDS first and then uh, took out some intellectual property we were able to hang on to some intellectual property called Opsware from that sale and worked out a deal with with EDS where they uh, licensed the software back to them and for about 20 million or something like that. And um, then they ran into issues there <laughs> because it turned out that EDS was like their core customer. And they had, there was one guy inside of EDS who didn't like their software, the, their ops, Opsware software that helped with automation of deploying uh, services, cloud services to hardware infrastructure. And this one guy didn't like that software, so he was about to kill the deal with, um, was it Op Opsware? Mm -hmm. uh, with, with Horowitz's Opsware company, which was a follow-on after LoudCloud. And uh, they, they f worked fiercely to figure out who the guy was that didn't like their software, and then worked fiercely to figure out what, how they could possibly appease mm -hmm. that guy. And they finally found the guy in Plano, Texas, and you know we're picking his brain saying you know asking what can we do to make you happy what can we do to keep this contract alive because eds was basically their only customer after doing that deal and they didn't want to die and so uh they eventually figured out that this guy had a personal 
grudge against EDS because he felt like they were always stabbing him in the back. And by giving this uh, new contract to Opsware, he was losing some key software that he loved that helped him do the inventory of the hardware he was in, in, uh, in charge of. So they figured out that if they could just buy that company that created that inventory software, which was a lot cheaper than what um, they were getting from EDS to keep their for their annual license. What they would have lost. Yeah, yeah what they would have lost. So they, uh, they just bought the company and licensed it back to them for free. And then they were able to keep EDS happy, which that was a really cool story. You know, yeah. They were able to get to the core of what this one person was that was blocking their success there. And, and it was had really nothing to do with their software for the most part. It had to do with this other software he was losing, potentially losing. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. But um, so then after after so many ups and downs with uh, Net with uh, LoudCloud and Opsware, they ended up selling, having a successful exit with Opsware to HP. And the thing that was interesting to me there was that you know you've got two two big Kind of, HP wasn't so much of a government contractor. But I think EDS was a big government contractor, and so they were kind of the ones that helped get him get keep their company alive there. And then HP, and then later on down the road, HP and EDS <laughs> merged into one company. So I thought that was kind of intriguing. All right, so that was, and, and from there, um, so while all this is going on, uh, there's the relationship building between Horowitz and Mark Andreessen, and they become good friends, and they, you know, go together through building these companies, and both of them become, you know, very wealthy at the end of the day through all of these ups and downs and all these struggles. And so the two of them, uh, af after all of this, I guess, eight years of different companies, uh, form a venture capital company called Andreessen Hor Horowitz, uh, and there. So this is another thing. Their their name is uh, A16Z, yeah. the name of their venture capital venture capital company. And so for the first time, after seeing all of these types of naming conventions with the the first letter and the last letter followed by the number, you know what those you know what that's called? I uh, know. I mean, but, but you know what they are. You know what it means. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I had no idea. I was like, wait, I need to figure out what that actually means. So I took a beat <laughs> and did some searching around. I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a thing called a pseudo, pseudo onym or something like that. So Brad, explain it. What is it? So yeah. Well, it's just the number of letters uh, between uh, the N of Andreessen and the T of Horowitz. So there's the sixteen. Z, yeah. Yeah, there's 16 letters in between the A and the Z. Yeah. And so, you know, if you count them all up, it's A, 16 letters, and then the Z. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember if you explained it in this book or one of his other books, um, the where the name A16Z came from. It may have been one of his it other It came books. from Deck way okay. back in the day because one of the, the the engineers of email had too long of a name that would fit, wouldn't fit in their email address space then. Yeah. So that's when they shortened his name, and then that's how that whole All thing right. got started. So it's been around for a long time, and apparently a lot of uh, you know software engineer people you know are very familiar with that. In fact, you know I've I've known the the what you know K8s for Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know what it was called. <laughs> 
it's embarrassing to admit uh, admit that you know you use these terms but you don't know where they came from or what, what they are but so i finally just sat down and, and you know did a quick search to figure out so what. would you be jc5 j j5e J5E, okay. Or not not five, but uh, one, two, three, seven. <laughs> seven, yeah, J7E. J7E, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. It was the, the, really the only point of that was to shorten shorten it, yeah. so you could get the email to work. Yeah. That was yeah. J8. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you've got, what was it for internationalization? It was I18N and localization, L10N or whatever. I just had no idea what the origin of that was, mm-hmm. or so it was just kind of embarrassing. Like, but I'm admitting it. I'm embarrassed by that. I didn't know it's... it. I just learned. Brooks knew it. Wow, <laughs> I, I don't know if I knew it before the books, but yeah, I mean, some of those I was familiar with. Not maybe not as a broader pattern. Yeah. So yeah. So Andreessen Horowitz Venture Capital. They they're making they're pumping money into tech companies, mm-hmm. you know, and, and making a lot of money there. So they're both I think in the billion worth in the billion, so good for them. So um, in closing, I just wanted to pull out some of the leadership lessons from the back of the book, um, and hopefully try to take those to heart, just like I learned what a sixteen Z. Okay, so number one, he mentions the use of lead bullets. The use of lead bullets against your competition, and I thought that was uh, a, an interesting way of putting it because they wanted a silver bullet to put Microsoft out of the game to, okay. to kill them. But uh, the the discussion was internally was well, silver well, there is no silver bullet. We can't kill these guys. It's going to take a bunch of lead bullets. We're just going to have to outperform them on a product for product basis and price by price basis mm-hmm. you're just going to have to hit them head head to head in order to win at the, the game that they were playing against the competition so i thought that was interesting head to head competition <laughs> uh, using lead bullets i guess uh number two was the relationship with bill campbell so he comes up again in another company and uh i just really loved how kleiner perkins pulled him in as like their silver bullet. Silver bullet. He really was their silver bullet. Whenever they invested in a company, you're like, hey, with that investment, you're going to get our Navy SEAL, your, our, our special forces business guy to help you return a profit from our investment. And that was Bill Campbell. So, uh, Number three, the importance of training employees. And I thought you would like this. He's a big believer in training employees. And he made the statement that, you know, McDonald's trains their employees. Why wouldn't high-tech companies train their skilled employees? Mm-hmm. So, uh, Brooks, I'm curious from your perspective with that question. Like, how do you make sure your employees get the development they need in directions that they want to go as well as that are going to mm-hmm. help the company? Yeah, that aspect of desire is super, super important. I was relating to somebody today at work. Like, there's uh, mm-hmm. early in my tenure um, with my current company, there was an engineer, super, super talented. Um, I was like, oh, this is going to be a great opportunity for mm-hmm. you. It's going to stretch. It's going to give you opportunity to demonstrate contribution in multiple different areas. And he's like, I'm not interested in this. Peace <laughs> out. I'm done. Um, and it was super hard because it was like, as a manager, like, I was trying to invest. Yeah. I was trying to I was trying to pave the way for this engineer to just rise to other levels. But it wasn't a direction he wanted to go in. Mm-hmm. And so he's just like, I'm going to find somewhere else where I can go in the direction I want. Um, and so it really is, there's a, a, 
I don't know that as much as I like to have precise calculations for everything, this is one of those areas in my life where I'm like, I don't have a precise calculation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's much more jazzy. It's much more fluid in terms of trying to figure out the direction they want to go in, understanding that that's not set in stone. Just because they said something once doesn't mean that's going to be the same thing that they feel tomorrow yeah. or next year. And so you need to keep checking in with them and seeing like, okay, where are you today? You know, what opportunities do we need to be preparing you for? Mm -hmm. And then giving them enough. And I think this is maybe even one of the hardest things as a manager. How do you give your people enough opportunity to be stretched mm -hmm. where they can assess for themselves? Oh, wow, I have a gap here I need to fill, um, but not stretch so far that they just break and they're just like, I can't do this. I give up. And yeah. so that making sure they have the support, they have the framework knowing when you need to kind of bring back a goal like if a goal is too big like okay like all right let's let's try to find something that's more reasonable um but that always is kind of aligned with where they are and understanding that their direction may change mm -hmm. um, so again not not that that's a precise answer but that's kind of the framework that i follow um, as i'm working with my teams mm -hmm. so do you go out and intentionally look for opportunities for your teammates yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, as uh, so now that I have several managers reporting to me, yeah. I mean, one of the things I'll talk about with them is like, listen, like there are two aspects for our planning process. So mm -hmm. one is absolutely like, you know, in, in the Amazon framework, always working backwards from our customers. You know, we talk a lot about that. Like mm -hmm. you know, we want to be the Earth's most customer obsessed, customer centric company. Um, so like the customer is everything for us. So we, we've got to work backwards from them, make sure we're meeting their needs. But then the other aspect is like as a people manager, our engineers are our customers. You know, mm -hmm. like we have to view, have that mindset of what are their needs? What mm -hmm. are the things they need? And so then there becomes this real balance of how do you obsess over your external customers? Yeah. How do you take care of your internal customers? But how do you also grow your people? And how do you align the opportunities within that sort of framework of the upcoming features or projects that mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. uh, to help them each grow where they are? Yeah. That's fantastic. It's definitely, it's very hard to do, I think. And it definitely mm. takes a lot of time and really getting to know those people and then knowing the organization yeah. and uh, finding those opportunities. Like I found as a manager, it's sometimes really hard to find those opportunities. And so fortunately, like we just go externally when we need to, but yeah, it's uh, I love that you're doing that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow. I like that. You guys, I love how you're, you're focused on people. It's, it's interesting. That's why we're supervisors. It's why it's why you're super people. <laughs> um, I did want to point out that I thought there was a little bit of a, a hypocritical statement uh, later on in the book about training, where he says, "My executives, I expect to have what they need to hit the ground running. I don't have time to train my executives." Well, so that like from what I do for a living, we need to be training our people from the first day they come in the door and that never happens. It's always, we need to focus on supervisors and executives. So by the time you get there, you don't know your ass from a tea kettle. And <laughs> get, get where? Up the chain to that Yeah, level? so yeah. we're going to promote you because you do your job really well, not because you're really good at with people or anything else. Mm -hmm. And then they're in an executive position, maybe because they wanted to promote them out of the way. Uh, anyway, it happens a lot. And then they are in a leadership role. They have a team. It's falling apart. They don't know how to lead. So we need to start from the ground up. Sorry. 
But why do you think he says he doesn't have time? There's no time to train executives, only lower people below managers. I love the fact he's training his lower people. That's exactly what I'm saying, that he's trained them so much from my perspective. Oh, that once they get to that level, they should have that mindset and that self-awareness to know where their gaps are. I think there's a... There's a real difference between you bring somebody in as an engineer, um, you expect there's going to be a certain onboarding period. And Hmm. typically, like, engineers are super, super critical. You know, they're all designing, implementing their particular components, Hmm. uh, but they have peers that are doing review processes. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain amount of checks and balances. Uh, Hopefully, you have managers who are fostering really good team atmosphere where they're supporting and they're building one another up. If you bring in a manager or an executive in particular who now has maybe hundreds of people in uh, their organization, they have the ability to seriously uh, decrease the enjoyment of hundreds of people's lives. Yes. And so I think that's where it's like, I I don't have time for that. It's not like maybe I, CEO, don't have time for that. But like as a, like ultimately, these are my people. Mm -hmm. So I cannot stand for you to come in as a, terrible manager as a terrible executive and ruin my people's experience yeah, okay. so like, I, I, okay. I don't there's there's sort of this it is a little bit of a dichotomy but again I think it comes back to the people in terms of the you know sometimes we use the phrase blast radius um, you know the blast radius of a bad exec mm-hmm. is way higher than the blast radius of right. a bad engineer very true yeah, that's a really good point yeah. thank you cool uh, number four the use of profanity in an organization should be tolerated to an extent. He talks about my how- people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he talks about at one point some of the people in the organization and the company were offended by the use of profanity and thought that he should get rid of. You should make it a law that no profanity in the organization. However, in, especially in engineering companies and software engineering companies, profanity is usually. You know, the status quo, and uh, it's a means of catharsis. And when you talk to a machine, that's the only way you can get a machine <laughs> to cuss at it, right? So, <laughs> well, and, he, and he has some good points. Like, there's nuance that he adds in the book of like, it's not to be used to abuse, it's right. not to be used to make somebody feel unsafe. Yeah. Like, any of that is like not to, zero yeah. tolerance. Like, right. that's not okay. Right. Um, if it's a question of manners or like what's proper language, I think that's where he's really like, I mean, what is proper language? Right. And I think this is where, I don't know if you're going to talk about hip hop at all. No, um, no, I wasn't going to. And I think there's this broader sort of influence of where, you know, particularly in outside of certain cultural segments, like using four letter words isn't considered, seen problematic. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, if my brother were here, he could talk to you about verbal bleaching and a lot of other things, you know, that kind of go into this concept of like, changing or stripping the, the meaning of words to, mm-hmm. you know, partly as coping mechanism and partly just like, this is what you know. Um, and so I think kind of understanding that it's maybe bigger than just like what's prim and proper and particularly in the engineering sense of, mm. you know, we, we hear, see that a lot. We hear that a lot of like, you have to be willing to break some things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we use this phrase, uh, you know, either fail fast or fail safe, you know, like that has to be a part of an engineer's mindset of how do you how do you break things but do it in a safe way because mm. that's the way that you really find that edge you know even like in performance testing like 
performance testing is a fancy way of saying, I'm gonna break this thing and I just wanna know when it breaks and how it breaks and where the fracture lines are so I can go figure it out and fix it and then break it again. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, I think this is you know, maybe an extension of that just in the linguistic sense. Mm. Yep. That's fun, I wanna break stuff. <laughs> in a safe way. In a safe way. <laughs> well, I love that too because like in the Navy, if you didn't use profanity, what nobody would even listen to you. That's really how you how we communicated. And so I appreciate that cultural aspect that it's some people that's just how they operate. And when you put them in a totally different culture and setting, mm. it's really hard for them to be able to um, feel included. Uh, so yeah, it's and every company is different. You know, like I've I've seen several different cultures in terms of organizations I've worked for, mm -hmm. in terms of what is tolerated, you know, which four letter words are okay, which ones are not, um, how many times you can yeah. say it in a particular, like, you know, like maybe the first time you, you know, drop something, it's okay, but then by the third time, somebody's going to be like, all right, you know, slow it down. Yeah. Uh, you know, you need to find another word, like expand your vocabulary. Um, but so, yeah, just understanding your audience and like, yeah. you know, to your point of the Navy, like know your audience, know what's going to communicate that message. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, be willing to make a safe place where people can communicate themselves and mm -hmm. be heard. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things I love about Bill Campbell is that he would drop the F-bomb all the time. Like he was, he was a football coach for, at heart and just would tell it like it is. <laughs> and, and, Cuss at you or whatever, get his point across. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's a quote in the book of, you know, in, in one of those early days, um, I think it was, you know, with Netscape, if I'm not mistaken, where Bill Campbell's coming in and, and he's like, it's not about the money, Ben. And Ben takes a sigh of relief. He's like, Phew. and then Bill says, it's about the effing money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's whether he should take the co the company public. I think it's right. loud club. Yeah, yeah, yeah loud club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's not about the money. Which like, we should okay. talk about cash flow at some point if you're not going to do that. But we'll come back to that. Okay, I won't. You bring that up. All right. So profanity. Hey, I got a lot of good discussion. <laughs> uh, number five, the importance of one-on-ones. Mm. And so he was big on one-on-ones. Yeah. And you all do one-on-ones. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, it's big in, in your companies as well, yeah. I assume. And... Uh, I think one-on-ones is important because it facilitates the vertical flow of information up to the top. Otherwise, how are the people at the top going to know what's going on really at the bottom unless that information gets bubbled up through one-on-ones? What else? Well, there's got to be that foundation be? of trust, too, to build trust with your teammates because if you don't have trust, then nothing is going to happen. Um, so I think that's a huge part of it, just getting to know them as a human. And then when things are off, so for example, one of my teammates, who I love to death, he's fabulous. When he doesn't talk, something is wildly wrong. <laughs> so. <laughs> that sounds like me. <laughs> the it's quiet one. <laughs> when he gets quiet, then be concerned. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so like just getting to know those relationships. And so, all right, when do I need to step in and say, all right, how can I help you? Or if something's like really off and their projects aren't going well, being able to have that trust foundation to have those conversations saying, all right, is something going on outside of work that we need to be aware of so I can give you some space to go figure yourself out. Hmm. So yeah, I think there's a lot like with one-on-ones, it's not just so, all right, give me your list, give me your tasks. It's more building that relationship. So that's what I, I don't know. I'm, assume you are <laughs> similar. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting in, in the last company I was at before coming, um, you know, now, I, I held one-on-ones because I was like, oh yeah, this is super important. It was kind of against the 
culture of the company I was at. Like it was pretty really? wild. Like it was this like really rebellious thing. And it was 15 minutes every other week. You know, like that was wow. as much as I felt like I could kind of like, all right, I, I think I can do it this much and not really ruffle anyone's feathers too much. Hmm. Um, but you know, some of it, like we talked about like understanding where engineers want to go, like mm -hmm. how, how are you going to know that if you're not having these conversations, you know, how are you going to know what opportunities they need if you're not listening to them? And so, yeah, on one hand, you know, you could say, and maybe this is, you know, kind of my heart as a, as a manager, like, I don't care about the execs, like, you know, they need to figure their own mechanisms out of getting in touch with the people, mm -hmm. but it's really? also for the, for your employees, like they need, you know, and we use the, the term FaceTime with the boss, yeah. you know, like that's one of the, the potentially the highlights of uh, an employee's week of like, Hey, I have my one-on-one -on -one yep. with the boss today. It's true. You know, and even like as a, as a, a manager or a senior manager now, like I still have that feeling like, okay, you know, today is my day for my one-on-one -on -one with my, my supervisor, or today is my day for my skip level one-on-one, -on -one, you know, mm -hmm. which happens even less frequently. And so there's that aspect of, one for the supervisor to know, but there's also that opportunity to listen, mm -hmm. you know, and I think it goes both ways. And I think that's, um, you know, one of the things that can make them really effective. And, and they're great ways of making sure that culture, like the cultural messages are getting across, yeah. uh, particularly as you're raising up leaders, you know, those are some safer spots to, you know, whether it's kind of intimate, personal, private things that mm -hmm. they maybe aren't going to share in a group setting, um, to the just making sure that everybody's kind of experience of you know and I'll, I'll use that phrase a lot like what is your experience of your job right now mm -hmm. you know because like i want to hear that it sucks before you tell me you're quitting yeah you know like if you've said hey i quit and i didn't realize you were having a bad time of it that's on me mm -hmm. and I, I failed you as a manager mm -hmm. so i'm hearing that it's not for the flow of the vertical flow of information so that the people at the top can really have There's a better feel for, for that. Such well, as what? So I will say it, it helps that, but yeah. that shouldn't be a manager's primary concern. Yes, you know, if, you, if your primary concern of I'm going to have one-on-one -on -one with my employees so I can feed the executives, you're a snitch. Yeah. Snitches get stitches. Like, you know, like, <laughs> that's not going to work out well for you long term. Yeah. You know, like, you need to be in touch with your people. You know, you need to be understanding your people and what they need. Mm -hmm. And then yes, you will filter and you'll pass some of that up. But that's, that has to be a secondary benefit yeah. and a secondary priority in your mind um, to the first of caring for your people, understanding your people. Are you transparent with the people that you have one-on-ones with about that? I don't know that I've used that How do you that build phrase. that trust? With um, so some of it is being a little bit yeah, I mean, being vulnerable, like mm -hmm. being professionally appropriately vulnerable in terms of even like my own, like my own experience of I'll talk about like, hey, here are things that are hard for me about my job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the military phrase, gripes go up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's a certain bit of like, I've kind of indoctrinated that into my own way of like, I don't want to just complain about like the org around me or about some executive. But, you know, there's certain things that, you know, are going on where it's obvious to my team that like, you're off. Like, what's going on with you? Mm -hmm. You know, like they know me well enough. And so like if I'm like, oh, everything's fine, then they, you know, they put the BS card and they shut down and they're like, okay, he's not real. Yeah. I can't trust him. Yep. And so like, if I have to be able to find that way to be like, all right, here's what's going on. Here's, you know, what's the appropriate version and not to like sanitize, not to lie, but what is, what's useful you know, because again, we talked about like control the things you can mm -hmm. control. Like even if as a manager, there are things I can't control. I certainly don't need to put that on my employees. Yeah. Like that's just, that's cruel. 
Um, but I can let them know like, hey, here's, here's the broader perspective. Here's where we're going. Here's the uh, strategy, the direction. And I think those are the things that ultimately, and I'll talk about my family. You know, one of the things we did um, pretty early in pandemic, we had a meeting on Friday mornings. Uh, we called it coffee, tea, breakfast, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And basically it's like, talk about whatever you want, just not work. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it was it was 9.15, so it's not super early in the day. So it was like, oh man, I gotta get out of bed on a Friday. Mm -hmm. But it was also earlier before like we fully kind of ramped up. It was only a half hour. It wasn't a super big time commitment. And it immediately sort of, um, we did like force you to join a separate meeting. So it wasn't like it immediately rolled into our daily standup, but it was, it was temporarily before it. And so like, that was one of the things where like you got to hear a lot about what people were interested in, mm -hmm. what they were doing on the weekend, you know? And so we really were able to sort of connect over some of those other things. And so then it, it wasn't weird. It's like, well, yeah, I know so-and-so has a son or a daughter. Mm -hmm. I know so-and-so is dating somebody on the other side of the country. I know so-and-so is getting ready to get married and maybe they're, you know, lots of other things. And so some of those things just kind of work themselves out mm. and become part of the, the fabric of the team. Mm. And you can, you know, treat those with respect and dignity. And then, um, you know, that, that's where the, in those moments where there is a, that sort of like, all right, we really need to talk about this because I, I need some help. Mm. Um, it's a lot easier to get there because you already have the background, mm -hmm. you know, whereas like, you know, nobody, they don't, they don't know, um, you know, my spouse is sick. They don't know my significant other's sick. They don't know I have a significant other, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, like how, how now when there is this crisis, do I give them all the backstory to get them to the point where they can help? Where mm -hmm. if, if you've already done the groundwork and the foundation, then it's just like, okay, yeah, here's the thing. I, you know, I need help. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to get there. Mm. That's really good. Yeah. That's really good to hear. Um, we could probably talk more about one-on-ones, but yeah, yeah, yeah. that was good. Um, number six, the most difficult CEO skill in mastering is psychology. Cognitive neuroscience. Take it away. Behavior. Good God. <laughs> Take that it away, Dr. Today. <laughs> Controlling that amygdala hijack. Controlling the amygdala hijack, yeah, knowing when to Controlling say it, when to say fear. it. Controlling your yep, fear. Controlling yep. your... All of this. All that stuff. <laughs> and then understanding that in others. Like having that empathetic communication where one... Self-empathy, you understand what you're experiencing and why. Okay, so you're driving down. This is my favorite example that Chrissy uses. You're driving down the road. You have your family in the car. You're some asshat cuts you off. And you're about to run into the car next to you to avoid him. You're like, you, ah! ragey, right? So why are you having this reaction? <laughs> <laughs> right? So your amygdala is hijacked. You're in full uh, fight or flight mode. And uh, but what's the need behind it? What need was not met? And so it could be you have a need for safety because you have your family in the car and they just, they just threatened your safety. It could be you have a need for order and <laughs> mm. order and consistency and they just totally broke the rule of order consistency and that put you in a fight or flight. So it's challenging your brain, but understanding that need and being able to get out of your amygdala back in your prefrontal cortex before you have the fuck you motherfucker reaction <laughs> in a work setting um, is huge. And then understanding that in others and having that empathetic communication in others, understanding what they're experiencing, just like Brooke said, and what they're needing and being able to talk about that in a way where they feel heard 
um, can totally change a context conversation. And as a CEO, 100%. Hmm. And, and psychology, the brain is so fascinating. And humans, as um, Brooke said earlier, not everyone is the same. And how we operate can change from a day-to-day basis. And so just being able to be a human-centered person can wildly change an organization because I've worked for leaders who are and I've worked for leaders who aren't and there is a huge context difference <laughs> so ah. absolutely is there a quick pra- quick thing that you can say to practice controlling that uh, that shot from your amygdala when something like that happens to you and controlling your response to that so typically it's overwhelming yeah typically it's wrecking your body is in fight or flight before your brain realizes it's happening Mm. so it's really physiologically understanding those key factors like all right so when you're an amygdala hijacked what typically happens to you i bubble up from uh my gut really quick Uh and i lash out verbally okay so you feel it in your gut first does your heart race at all uh, I don't, it's too fast. It's like, too fast. Okay. It's a burning here and a burning here. And okay. It comes out my mouth. <laughs> so you, you have burning. Great. Yeah, that's what it feels <laughs> like. It's a burning. So as soon as you feel it in your gut, recognizing that and asking yourself a question saying, and, and saying, all right, I'm recognizing I'm about to get into a big deal. But hijack. you need to practice that. Oh, how do you, 100%. How do you practice that before you get in a live situation and offend somebody? Mindfulness. <laughs> Mindfulness and intention. Hmm. And really practicing, I shouldn't say this. I really shouldn't say this. But Sometimes how do you really trigger that? Like, that's the thing. To, it's you want me to start triggering? <laughs> I guess it's a rhetorical yeah. question. No, how do you really trigger you that? You have to get those setting? neural pathways built before you're in an amygdala hijack. Yeah, so okay. if you start practicing now in, like, safe situations. And sometimes it's conditioning. So, um, for example, uh, one of my teammates and I will have conversations and she practices this with others. So she'll use triggering words to get me to that point where I'm starting to react. And I'm like, okay, stop. And then I get back control. So it's building that neural pathway and me learning how to control that reaction. And so this is a way that we practice in mindfulness in order to push ourselves to that limit. And then when we're on our own, okay, I practice this and just like any other thing, just like practicing baseball or practicing rowing. So building those neural pathways, making them stronger. And this reminds me of a discussion we had recently um, where you, you brand that training as mindfulness. But I think if you branded it differently uh, about something about controlling that amygdala, the power of the amygdala has over our, our responses in a mm-hmm. professional setting some way. Because mindfulness sounds so ching-chingy, you know, new agey kind of thing to me. Like that's why when I hear that term, I don't really consider the yeah. seriousness of it. It's very important. And I think we yeah. all need to learn better to how we can become like Spock, you know, in a professional setting and not lit the barbs well, that get thrown across us in a boardroom or in a, mm-hmm. you know around a table let that affect us and it's hard yeah it's really hard and i mean i think the stephen covey talks about it in mm-hmm. his habits of highly effective people the interrupting mm-hmm. you know so yeah. interrupting you know that taking that pause mm-hmm. so i mean i think there are two things i was going to say so one is you know the role play like mm-hmm. role play is a great way of doing it so i can remember as um training to be an ra i think before my junior year of college you know, they put us in these situations where basically you're supposed to go knock on the door and then there's some sort of fight going on behind the door and you just don't know what you're going to get into. <laughs> and so, 
you know, I the first one, like, I remember, like, oh, it's fine. You know, they're arguing about things like, I don't care. Like, I could care less about what they're arguing about. And then all of a sudden, one of them slams on pecan pie. And I was like, oh, no, you didn't. You did not just hate on pecan pie. Like, who are you to be hating on pecan pie? Like, I'm, I now am invested and I care and I'm, I'm going to throw down in the middle of this argument. And it was like, oh, wait, that's the point. Yeah. You know, like they, were, they were trying to find that thing. And like, how do I stop? How do I pause? So that, that's one of like role play. Mm-hmm understands some of what your triggers are and like also kind of keep a, a note of like these are things that trigger me mm-hmm. you know these are going to be some of the things that just set me off and then so too for you know the, the managers the leaders the supervisors there's a really important aspect of this that we have to embody in our teams of it doesn't do james any good if he's he's worked on all his new age spock mindfulness <laughs> interrupting himself if he is in a team in an org that doesn't give him space to do that. So yes. if he's in a meeting yes. where James is, he is working overdrive to, you know, to uh, stop the amygdala hijack, but then the conversation keeps going because people are talking over themselves and they're not, mm-hmm. you know, giving room. And particularly now in hybrid settings or in mm-hmm. virtual settings, you know, there aren't those clear ways. Like sometimes you feel like the only way is to like just throw down. And, you know, so you're, as leaders, we've got to figure out ways to create organizations, to have mechanisms mm-hmm. where people don't have to basically f- throw gasoline on their amygdala in order to be heard. Mm-hmm. And, and that's super, super hard of like, how do you do that? Like one, you're you know trying to do it for yourself of how right. do I stop my own right. sort of uh, triggers? But then two, how do I create a safe place that allows lots of other folks from lots of different backgrounds with lots of different triggers to also speak in ways where they're controlling themselves they have time to control themselves because mm-hmm. like most people need a little bit of time to process, to slow down and to respond. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good, good mm-hmm. points. And that's what she does. That she's yep. the big proponent of that. Yeah. We're, we built mindfulness and we're building mindfulness into our culture and already it's made a difference. A good related quote that I, I noted um, in the book is he says, the only thing that prepares you to run a company is running a company. <laughs> oh yeah. That's kind of related to that. I thought that was a good quote. Um, Okay, that's number six that we're running along here. Number, the final one, number seven, there are three attributes of leadership every CEO should work on. And I really love this. Number one, the ability to articulate a vision. And Mm -hmm. in order to do that, you should emulate Steve Jobs. Hmm. So Steve Jobs was really great at articulating a vision to shareholders and his company and to the world about the great products coming out of Apple. Number two, have the right kind of ambition. And in order to do that, emulate Bill Campbell. And even though he was a rough and tumble football coach, he led with love. He loved everybody that he came in contact with. He hugged everybody he was working with. And everybody felt that he, mm-hmm. they, you know, he really liked them. He really loved them. And so uh, people really just in, totally enjoyed, from what I'm reading, they really just loved working with the guy. And so... Uh, lead with the right kind of ambition mm-hmm. uh, people first and, and not with your own self-interest at heart uh, number three be the have the ability to achieve a vision and in order to do that you should emulate Andy Grove who was the CEO of Intel and he references two two great books from Andy Grove high output management have you read that I haven't and only the paranoid survive 
you know, one of those. Not yet. So well, I haven't either, but uh, I made a note of those. And apparently Andy Grove was was really great at uh, management and execution and very particular about <laughs> making sure things got done a certain way. Nice. So I'd like to read those two books, find out more about Andy Grove. And so those are the seven takeaways I, I took from this book. And I love the discussion that we had about that. Thank you guys very much. Yeah. So do you want to talk about cash flow or do you want to wrap it up? No, no, go ahead. What so, you, whatever you want to add. Well, so I think like with LousCloud, you know, there, there's this uh, description in the book of basically like they're flush with venture capital, mm. you know, and so yeah. it's like, all right, well, great. Like, well, what would you do if you could spend this amount of money? And that's a super dangerous question to, you know, this is Brooks' paraphrase, but that's a super dangerous thing to say to an engineer of like, what would you do if you had all this money? And, you know, they basically do that. And so even though they had great technology, they had a great solution, you know, they didn't watch that cash flow enough. And he talks about this, like we had, our bookings were awesome. You know, we had amazing bookings, but the way that the revenues actually realized you can't count it just because you booked the business and right. you signed the contract, yeah. you got to see the money come in. And so like, I think that was one of the things that really just was led to the downfall of LoudCloud mm. of, you know, they, they extended themselves beyond what their cash flow would support, you know, with this sort of like best case scenario of, yeah, we're going to be able to do this. But then as soon as they started falling off that best case scenario, you know, they just didn't have the cash flow and that, you know, you talked about this several times. They had to go back and get more cash. They had to get more cash. Yeah. They were running, running too hot. They're running too hot. And so I think that's one of the things. Um, you know, having, so, you know, having the vision, having it narrow, you know, starting kind of with your customers, okay. minding your cash, you know, making sure that you have cash to continue sustaining operations. When times get tough. Mm -hmm. That's right. You know, cause they all, there's the U S economy is a Oof. cyclic economy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be highs and lows all the time forever. Yeah. Thank you for Thanks being here. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Good luck on your adventure starting you. tomorrow. Yeah. I'll see you Friday. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the plan. Yeah. All right. Well, um, again, this was The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And it's a really great book, especially if you are an aspiring business leader or CEO. It's got a lot of great tips and uh, good good uh, history of the internet there and some of the technologies.